Father, we come to you this morning um, just needing for you to speak to us. We always need a word from you, but it just seems like in these days and times, um, just like in the days of Samuel, the word of the Lord seems to be so um, infrequent. And so we, we're here to this morning for you to speak to us. We long to hear from you. Um, take, help us to take what we hear, put it to use in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been taking um, what I would say a hard look into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Very specifically, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And uh, we, we said that as we've been looking in the gospel records at Jesus's calling of those that he called to be disciples, we've, we've come up with the idea that, um, and I didn't come up with it, <laughs> lots of different Bible scholars have, but we've come to the idea that there are at least three phases that Jesus' calling of his disciples went through. The first phase was the come and see phase. Come and see phase, and that's found in John chapter 1 through 4. Probably was a period of about four or five months, and the whole intent was Jesus' invitation to these uh, men was to come and see. That is, come check me out, uh, start understanding my character, understand my servanthood, understand the mission that I, that I am working in. And then after that is the come and follow phase. Come and follow phase. That was about a 10 or 11 month period. It involved probably at least 70 to maybe 120 consistent followers of Jesus Christ. And so through the teaching and the example of Jesus Christ during that period of time, uh, they came to see the absolute uh, essential nature of Scripture and the importance of community and uh, the idea of outreach, reaching other people <coughs> to come to Jesus Christ. So this morning as we look at the third phase of Jesus' call to these men to be His disciples, Let's start, first of all, by looking at the timeline. And, and maybe I, what I'd like to give you is an understanding of the nature of the Gospels in the New Testament. These are not full-blown biographies of Jesus Christ. Instead, they're snapshots. Here's something He did. Here's something He taught. Here's another incident that happened. Here's a healing. <clears throat> so they're all snapshots. In fact... Listen to what John says in his gospel, John 21, verse 25. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So the gospels are just snapshots. And more than that, they were organized really as teaching manuals to be used in the early church. Matthew, for instance, if you look at the gospel of Matthew, you're going to find that it's probably organized at two different ways, probably. First of all, it's organized by what I would call geographic focus. The first number of chapters in the book of Matthew are focusing on Jesus' ministry and teaching in Galilee, the northern region of, of uh, the Holy Land. And then comes a period where the transition is, begins to be made between Galilee and all the way to Jerusalem. And those middle chapters in the book of Matthew talk about that. And then finally, as you get to the last chapters of the, of the book of Matthew, you see the whole scenes are centered in Jerusalem. His teaching, uh, his crucifixion, his, his resurrection. 
But another way in which the Gospel of Matthew could be organized would be looking at five large sections of teaching that Jesus did. One that we're most familiar with is the Sermon on the Mount. It covers three chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, you find five different sections like that. And it's interesting that each one of those sections close <coughs> with words that would, would simply say something like, uh, and after Jesus taught these things, after Jesus spoke these things, um, you know, he would uh, move on to whatever and ever, uh, whatever. So it's organized around those teaching schemes. So Matthew, many scholars believe, is really was a discipleship manual used to train new converts into the early church to help them to know the story of Jesus and his teachings. So I want us to look at some narratives in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and in John that will really help us as we seek to get a grip on this timeline of when this phase of, of that we're talking about, this third phase, the uh, come and follow me phase, or really it's come and be with me phase is what we're talking about here. Um, so in Matthew chapter 4, last week we looked at the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. These men were part of the larger crowd that was following Jesus Christ. And then as you move on in chapter 4, you find this. Look at Matthew 4 beginning at verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from uh, beyond the Jordan. So <clears throat> this phase that we're talking about right there is that second phase. It's the come and follow me phase. And it probably <clears throat> took place 10 or 11 months or so forth. You know, this first year or maybe even the first year and a half um, of the earthly ministry of Jesus is kind of in those two phases, those first two phases. Now, this campaign, if you want to call it that, in Galilee that Matthew is recording here continues after the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Listen as we begin reading at verse 35 of Matthew 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Look at verse 36. Seeing the people... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a, shep without a shepherd. Then he said to, the, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest and send out workers into the harvest. So Jesus is disturbed at the lostness of the crowds who are following him. Uh, if I could summarize Jesus's words. I would simply say they were a mess. That's basically what, what he's saying here. In fact, I looked at 16 different translations. Listen to the words that each one of those translations use to describe the people who were following. Words like distressed, troubled, confused, bewildered, worried, weary, 
hurting, harassed, dejected, dispirited, helpless, worn out, aimless, scattered abroad, miserable, fainted. In fact, the New Living Bible says their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. <coughs> Jesus saw this and he had compassion for these people. And you know what Jesus' solution to this was? More workers. We need more workers. That's what he's basically saying here. So how are these workers to be found? Well, look at the example here of Jesus. In prayer to the Father, who's the Lord of the harvest, Jesus prayed for more workers. Look at Luke 6, 12. It was at this time, he, he said, look at the crowds. The, the harvest is white, ready, ready for harvesting. We need more workers. And so it says in Luke 6, 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. See, since the solution was prayer, Jesus spent a very intense night praying. I think for us, as a starting place to reaching our community who are lost, who are bewildered, who are befuddled, who are worried, who are burdened, the starting place for us is also in prayer. We need to pray that God would thrust workers into the harvest. And we need to pray that the answer would be you and me. That we could be a part of that answer in reaching our community for Jesus Christ. Shameless plug. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're gathering right here for prayer. About 30 minutes, come and join us as we pray for our community. Now look at Luke 6.13. This is after that full night of praying. And it says, and when day came, he called his disciples to him. Now this would have been the 70 to 120 regular followers of Jesus that he would say, these are my, my true followers. He says, when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Here was to be an inner circle of 12 men who would spend 24-7 with Jesus training for the task at hand. In, in Luke chapter 6, at verse 14, listen to what it says. He names those disciples. Simon, who was also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This begins the come be with me phase. So you had to come and see, come and follow, and now come be with me. <clears throat> now, there's going to be a period of approximately 20 months in this phase that ends in, of course, the, the approaching crucifixion. And they were intent, days of intense training for these disciples <clears throat> that they could reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. So notice the pattern that you see here, and it's, it's a great pattern for anybody who's going to mentor somebody else. They were with Jesus, and they watched Jesus do ministry. And then they were sent out by Jesus to do ministry, but Jesus was physically present to give guidance and, and uh, feedback to them. But one day, they would be sent out carrying the good news, but Jesus would not be physically present with them. But they would be ready for that going out because of the intense training that Jesus had given them. They were, they, he had given them precisely what they needed. 
So let's ask the question then, who are these men? And, and more importantly, why were they chosen? I mean, these were not the prized students of the day. They weren't the best of the best. Uh, those guys had gone on with other rabbis in that region. Uh, so here were a group of illiterate, unskilled, untutored fishermen and laborers, and even a fiery revolutionary by the name of Simon Zelotus. From the world standpoint, they were a very insignificant company of, of disciples, chosen by Jesus, though, to carry out an amazing life and death mission to reach the world for Jesus Christ. So why did Jesus choose them? Listen to the words of A.B. Bruce in his book, The Training of the Twelve. He says, the truth is that Jesus was obliged to be content with fishermen and publicans and zealots for apostles. They were the best that could be had. Those who deemed themselves better were too proud to become apostles and thereby excluded themselves from what all the world now sees to be the high honor of being the chosen princes of the kingdom. The civil and religious aristocracy boasted of their unbelief. And the citizens of Jerusalem, they did feel for a moment interested in this zealous youth who had purged the temple with a whip of small cords. But their faith was superficial. And they were patronizing. And, and therefore, Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And so Jesus was obligated to fall back on the rustic but simple, sincere, and energetic men of Galilee. He was quite content with his choice and devoutly thanked his father for giving him even such as they. Learning, rank, wealth, refinement, freely given up to his service, he would not have despised, but he preferred devoted, uh, excuse me, devoted men who had none of these advantages to undevoted men who had them all. See, these men who came to Jesus, that Jesus called, were really simple, godly men who were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah. They were devout. They were unencumbered by the shackles of rules and regulations of the Pharisees. They were free from the hypocrisy and the, the scheming of the priests and all the religious leaders of that day and time. What they were is they were a direct answer to Jesus' prayer to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the harvest. And so they would work unselfishly. They would work humbly in the fields that were white under harvest. So there was no mistake in their choosing. Not even Judas Iscariot was a mistake, folks. So what was to be their purpose? Look at Mark chapter 3, beginning verse 13. <clears throat> and Jesus went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. By the way, if you have a New American Standard Bible and, and you see my notes are in that section or in that asterisk that's there, you see it throughout the New Testament in uh, the New American Standard. That simply is a past tense verb that has a continuous action to it. So instead of saying, and he went up, a better translation of the Greek, and he was going up. He, he continually was going up, that kind of a thing. That's why that asterisk is there. You probably have always wondered that, right? There you go. Now you know. Okay. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12 so that they could be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So there's two purposes for these disciples that are given here in, in verse 14. So that they could be with him and that he could send them out to preach. 
two purposes there. First of all, they were to be with him. That talks about relationship. He, they were called to be in relationship with him. Uh, he, he called these people so that they could be with him. Not just as students, but as companions. Let me remind you again of the um, first century pattern of discipleship. A student would attach himself to a rabbi or, or a teacher. Second, he would learn or memorize the words of the rabbi. Third, he was learning the rabbi's way of ministry. And fourth, he was imitating the teacher's life and, and character. You could probably summarize all that I just said with the words, be with him. That's why they were called. They were called to be with him. There was a relationship there. But the second thing you see in their calling was he sent them out. They were called to be sent out. There's a responsibility there. Responsibility. That is, he sent them out on mission to proclaim the good news that right relationship with God is possible through Jesus Christ. Uh, So they had a task before them. They were to bring others to be followers of Jesus Christ which incidentally is the fifth thing that a disciple did. Not only did a disciple attach himself to a teacher, not only did he memorize the teacher's words, not only did he begin to learn the rabbi's way of ministry, not only did he begin to imitate the the teacher's life and, and his character, but he also was to be about raising up his own disciples. So in Luke 6, 13, look what it says. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Apostles. The word apostle means a sent one, one who is sent out. It's one, uh, it's a person who has a very special charge and special authority from somebody who's sending them. They're on a mission. They've got a task to do. In fact, the Aramaic form uh, used by Jesus in Incidentally, Jesus spoke Aramaic, okay? Just remember that. The Aramaic form points to the fact that they were sent out with a definite charge and clothed with authority. And therefore, they spoke and they acted um, in the name and on the authority of the one who sent them. You remember in in Matthew 4, Jesus spoke to both James and John and Peter and Andrew, and he says, come and follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men, exactly. They were those who were to catch others into the kingdom of God, into a redeeming relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So with that background, I've done all that just to set the background, okay? What does it mean? This is the question we've been wrestling with the last three weeks. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? Let me give you three words that I think come out of all of this, of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. First word is obedience. We talked about that at length last week. You know, John's gospel devotes three full chapters to the last teaching session that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, John 14, 15, and 16. And in those chapters... In those instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples on that that night before his betrayal, he reminded them that to follow is to be obedient. Look at John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
See, a Christian, one who proclaims his or her love for Jesus Christ, is one who obeys. It is the one who obeys who is the believer. And the believer obeys. That's essential. But also, in John 15, Jesus reminded them of another reason why they were called, and that's relationship. Look at verse 14 through 16. You are now my, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. What I want you to understand is that being a Christian is much more than some kind of organizational membership, like you're a member of the Lions Club, or you're a part of the, the soccer team, or uh, you know you're a, you're you're a part of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or something like that. Or you know you say, oh by the way, I'm a member of such and such church. That looks good on a resume, especially when you're running for political office, that you can put that down there. But being a follower of Jesus Christ is so much more than that. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is more important than rituals. You know, going to church every Sunday and putting some money in the in the offering basket when it's passed. And, you know, maybe serving on a committee and, uh, you know, uh, checking off that you've read your Bible, you know, this week. Or <clears throat> maybe the practice of saying grace at every meal. It's much more than that. Believing, uh, being a follower of Jesus Christ is more than following rules and regulations. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with God the Father. It's a relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you <clears throat> that as a, excuse me, as a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ, you are chosen by God for a relationship with Him. Bible makes plain that you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world to be God's very own. He circled you out and he called you and he says, I want you to be my child. We're drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might fall in love with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we are chosen by God. So there's obedience, there's relationship. And then the third word is the word of mission. John 15, the last part of verse 16. Jesus says, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. The word fruit there, um, that's, that is, they were to lead people into a redeeming, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That was the fruit they were producing in the lives of others. <coughs> Folks, what I want you to, to know, and to hear me clear on this, you were, you were, uh, you're not here just to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's absolutely essential, but that's not the only essential in your life. There's another purpose. God has brought you into a relationship with himself, and he could have taken you on to heaven. You know, he could have made sure that your, your salvation was secure and then taken you on to heaven. Um, you know, why would he want to leave you here in this crazy, wicked world? be great just to be out of here, wouldn't it? But he has a purpose for you. He has a reason for you to be here. And what is that? Because he has a mission for you. He wants us to tell others right here in Elko County about the fact that all of those who are lost and wandering sheep without a shepherd, that they can 
find purpose and meaning in life, that, that they can find rest for their weariness. They can find healing for their hurts. They can find a relationship with Him. That's our mission as followers of Jesus Christ. There is, however, one more phase to the calling of these disciples. Um, they were to come and see. They were to come and follow. And they were to come and be with him. And, and so here are the disciples. And they're now with Jesus 24-7. And as the, the days and weeks go on, Jesus begins giving warnings about coming persecution. Listen to Matthew 10, verse 16. He says, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogue. Matthew uh, verse 22 then of that same chapter. All nations will hate you because you are my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Now here is a daunting truth. The prospects for the future of these disciples will include persecution and even death because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, I think as Jesus said that, the disciples kind of, whoa, wait a minute here. They were a little troubled in what they're hearing here. Is this what we signed up for, you know? Does this following Jesus include this? Uh, notice on in chapter 10 there how Jesus responded to really their unspoken question. Verse 24, students are not greater than their teacher and slaves are not greater than their, uh, than their masters. Students are to be like their teachers and slaves are to be like their masters. And since I, the master of the household, have been called a prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. See, Jesus has told them that his basic purpose for coming was not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And so the message of the kingship, the, the messiahship, the lordship of Jesus Christ is one that is always met with a violent response from those who do not know Christ as Savior. Um, have you ever asked the question, why is it that Christians are hated in the world? And yes, here in America as well. Why are, why are we hated? The fact of the matter is, we are a threat to unbelievers. I mean, the Christian faith calls people's actions and motives into question. And they stand condemned for their sinful actions and their, their sinful nature. Your life as a believer really serves as an indictment. It serves as a warning. There's a day of reckoning. There's a day of judgment coming. And you know what? Most people don't like to be told that they're wrong. And that they're headed for judgment, do they? Thus, Christianity is hated by those who are not Christians. And if we're going to represent Jesus Christ in the world, and, and that's one of the things that it means to be a Christian, uh, then we need to understand and we need to accept the fact that we will be treated in the very same way that Jesus was treated in this world. Um, you know, Jesus asked those who were following him, if you're going to follow me and, and become like me, what might makes you think that the world will treat you any different than it treated me? Why do you think you're going to escape the coming persecution? And yes, even the possibility of death. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. And then here in chapter 10 of Matthew comes the gravest words yet. Look at verse 37. 
if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of becoming mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. With these words, Jesus introduces a whole new concept of what it means to follow him. Not just come and see, you know, come check me out, find out about my character, my, my servanthood, you know, my mission. Not just come and, and follow me, walk in my steps as a student, uh, learn my words, imitate my lifestyle, begin to do what I do, imitate my, my character. And not just come and be with me in an intimate, growing relationship with him, being on mission and leading others to know him as, as Lord and Savior. But now Jesus has raised the stakes. What Jesus is saying, come and die. Come and die. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It means to move progressively from come and see to come and die. And what does it mean to come and die? Well, I think according to this verse, first and foremost, Jesus demands ultimate loyalty that supersedes any other loyalty in our life. It's a loyalty that's stronger and closer than even the love that we have for family. He says, in contrast to your love for me, your love for your family ought to look like hatred. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying you really literally need to hate your mother and father but he's saying, in contrast, your love for me and your loyalty to me ought to make that pale in comparison. And second, he's talking about a willingness to follow even if it leads to death, simply because of me, because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is talking about our priorities here. Our priorities. Let me explain, explore that a little further. Look at another instance several weeks, months later in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with all of his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now look at the context of this statement. Jesus has just spoken of his impending crucifixion. Think of the dismay that Peter and the other disciples must have had when they thought, well, you know what, uh, the death of the Messiah, yeah, it's probably going to have some income in implications for the lives of his, his followers as well. And so what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. And in response, Jesus broadens the implication of his words. Discipleship, he says, includes the possibility of death for anyone who follows. You know, in our day, we have blunted those words um, and, and the force of these words in this verse. We talk, well, what he's talking about is self-denial here. We, that's kind of how we, we dismiss it. And, and it's kind of like, you know, okay, it's Lynn. I'm going to give up chocolate, you know. Uh, and, and so that's what we're, he's talking about here. Or maybe when he talks about cross-bearing, we're thinking, you know, my aunt drives me crazy. But, you know, I guess that's the cross I've got to bear. Folks, that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. 
Uh, he and, and what I want you to do, don't water down the implication of this verse here. These words of Jesus are about literal death, about following here a condemned man on his way to execution with the distinct possibility of your own death. That's what he's talking about here. And so there is risk involved in being a, a disciple. There's potential martyrdom. That's what he's talking to them about. So don't take Jesus' words as a metaphor. He means them to the disciples in a literal fashion. He expects that some of these disciples are going to be killed because of their loyalty to him. And you know what? Almost all of them were killed in some very tragic form. You see, for these disciples... Following Jesus Christ meant another word, not only obedience, not only relationship, not only mission, but also risk, risk. These were men who were called to the risky business of being a disciple, of following Jesus Christ. So again, let's ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means a willingness to embrace risk in our life. It means moving out of our comfort zone. It means becoming more than just a Sunday morning follower of Jesus Christ. It means more than just adherence to a set of beliefs and some religious doctrine and practices. It means to embrace the risky business of one who was so radical that most of the people in his day didn't understand what he was up to, and they put him to death. Being a fully functioning Christian, folks, is risky business. You know, around the world, this very day, there are hundreds and probably thousands who have risked physical death in worshiping Jesus Christ with a group of other believers. Uh, every week, there are reports of people who are dying because of their faith in Jesus Christ. This is risky business. Uh, let me urge you, challenge you, command you, okay? Here's a book I want you to read. Get a hold of the book, The Insanity of God. The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. N-I-K-R-I-P-K-I-N. Nick Ripkin. That's a pseudonym. You don't know who he really is. Um, you need to read that book. That will revolutionize your thinking about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The Insanity of God. You see, in our country... We know so little about the risky business of being a Christian. Although it kind of appears we're headed that direction, don't you think? In some ways. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. Look, look what he says. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see what he said? If anyone wishes to follow me, first of all, that says it's a choice. It's a choice. You and I have the choice to follow anybody we want to. We, we can do with our lives whatever we please, that we're, we're pleased to do. We're free to choose how we want to live. That's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We've got choice. So you get to choose. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I not going to follow Jesus? It's your choice. But here's what I want you to understand. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, if you choose to become a Christian, you must do so on His terms and not your own terms. Uh, 
If you and I are going to follow Jesus Christ, it must be done his way, not our way. So he says, anyone who wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That word deny means to disassociate oneself from. And here, it's really referring to laying aside our own self-interest in favor of God's interest in our life. It's removing any obstacle that would keep us from saying yes to God. It means giving up my rights to God and following no matter what I want, what, what I want. It, it, what matters is what He wants. So I no longer have the right to make the decisions in my life, to make the shots in my life, to be the boss of my life. I give Him the right to control my future, to control my life. That's the Lordship of Jesus Christ because He is sovereign. And I'm just a servant who says, as you wish, my Lord. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And again, he is pointing to literal possibility of death. This is risky business following Jesus Christ. Now, not every loyal follower of Jesus Christ will become an actual martyr. But we must all recognize and and accept that possibility that it could take place. And even if we're never asked to follow in death, we certainly are going to know the, the social stigma of being labeled as a follower of Jesus Christ in the days ahead. And we need to be ready for that. But this is what Jesus calls us to do. He says, come and die. Die to your own interests. Die to your plans. Die to your own ambitions. And be willing to risk it and follow all. He says, for whoever uh, wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Folks, playing it safe, you will lose. Lose the reward, lose the opportunity to bring glory to God, and even lose your immortal soul if you say no to the calling of Jesus Christ to be his follower. But for those who do respond, those who are the risk takers, who are willing to lose their life for Christ's sake, those who say yes to Jesus Christ, they're the ones who will ultimately be rewarded. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? To follow Christ, to be a disciple means that I'm obedient to every command. It means that our relationship with Jesus Christ becomes the most important thing in my life. It means to, that I'm also on mission helping others to find a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But it also means that I've got to engage in the risky business of living each and every day for Jesus Christ and Him alone. His plans, His way, His glory. It means to take a risk. So let me ask a question, a question that I struggle with, a question all of us need to struggle with, and it's simply this. Am I man enough to be a Christian? Are you, a, are you woman enough to be a Christian? Are we man and woman enough to really be a Christian? You know, if God were to suddenly change His calling on your life, would you be willing to quit your job, move your family, or leave your family, if, if that's what God told you to do, and move somewhere around the world because God told you to do that? Are you willing to take that kind of risk? You see, in a church this size, God is laying on somebody's heart. You ought to be involved in full-time ministry doing something. 
Are you willing to take that risk or are you just going to keep pushing God off? And one day, years from now, you're going to look back with regret and say, man, God was calling me and I said no. This is risky business. Are you willing to take that risk? In 1904, William Borden graduated from high school in Chicago, Illinois. William Borden was already wealthy. He was the heir to the Borden family fortune that came about through the milk and cheese industry. And um, he had it made. And, and, you know, for his graduation at 16 years of old, his parents sent him on a around-the-world trip to celebrate his graduation. And while he was going around the world through uh, Asia and then the Middle East and then Europe, God laid on his heart a burden for the hurting in this world. And he wrote back home and, and he said, I have a desire to be a missionary. Uh, one friend in disbelief says, William's going to throw his life away being a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible, and they were the words, no reserves. Well, during his college years at Yale University, Bill Borden um, wrote in his personal journal uh, a statement that really defined his personal commitment. He wrote this. He, it simply says, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. So during his first semester at Yale University, he began to meet every morning with one other student for prayer. And soon there were three. And before the end of his freshman year, uh, there were 150 freshmen who were meeting once a week for prayer and for Bible study. And by his senior year, there were 1,000 out of the 1,300 students at Yale University who were meeting weekly for prayer and for Bible study because of the impact on his life. When he graduated, William Borden got lots of offers to go into the business world, very lucrative offers, uh, and he turned them down. And, and in his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. After Yale, William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary. And when he finished, he determined that he was going to China. And because he wanted to work among the Muslims there, he went to Egypt first so he could learn Arabic. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within one month, he was dead. And when the news was cabled back to the United States about the death of, of uh, William Borden, Newspapers all across the country ran the article, and, and, and the thought was, what a waste. What a waste. If he had stayed here, look what he could have accomplished. What a waste. Well, was, was Borden's untimely death a waste? Folks, not in God's perspective. Um, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. So underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats. He wrote the words, no regrets. See, that's what it means to be, be a Christian. No holding back, no going back, no looking back. Will that be said about you and me when we die? God, I pray that every person in here would have that kind of attitude that would say, I'm not going back, I'm not holding back, I'm not looking back. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would make us fit for the risky business of following you. That we would come to understand more and more and more what it really means to be a disciple, one who is fit for the kingdom of heaven, that could really make a difference in our world. Forgive us for playing games with you, for being Sunday morning only Christians and even three-eighths Christians. And instead, make us people who are in obedience to, do, to you, who are relationship with you as our number one priority, people who are on mission for you that others might know you, and people who are willing to risk it all to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.